This episode of Hello PhD is sponsored by Promega and listeners like you. Thanks for your support. I took perhaps a non-traditional route through academia. I started college when I was 11. I think I encountered my first big failure when I started applying to grad school because I got rejected. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, we talk with a PhD who started grad school at age 17. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 121. I'm Joshua Hall. I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Things look different, Josh. Things seem different, Dan. There's a chill in the air. This doesn't look like my home at all. This is not the normal studio we recorded. We are actually coming to you live on location from Madison, Wisconsin. Yeah, we are at the home base, Promega. That's right. We've had a great time here. We are recording a webinar, which is going up on, I think, in October. Recording a webinar going up in October on poster presentation. But while we were here, Josh, you have a friend that happens to be in Madison, and we wanted to reconnect and ask some questions. Yeah, so, in fact, she's sitting right here as we talk about her. Oh, there to say she hello is. to Julia. Hi, Julia. Hello. And we've decided to include Julia in the ethanol portion of our show today. So, uh, in the spirit of being in Wisconsin, we are sampling a Louise Demise Amber Ale from MKE Brewing. And that's not Louise, like... Hey, Louise, that's no, Louis, the, the possessive, the possessive of, Louis. of Louis. Correct. This is Louis' demise. Yeah, did you sample it? No. Uh, we all have one, so let's just. We're splitting try this one here. three ways. Okay, this is less hoppy than, than what I'm used to. Well, I mean, as an amber ale, it's a little sweet. It's got a little tanginess. What do you think, Julia? Um. I'm not a beer expert, despite having lived in Wisconsin for seven years. Yet. It, you're it, not yet a beer expert. <laughs> <laughs> it, it tastes like beer. Yeah. It, it does t- taste like beer. Has a bready aftertaste. Yeah. No, yeah, I, you're I, absolutely right. That, I think that's a very great observation, because this beer does not taste like all other beers. This one is much maltier. It's growing on me. Great. Well, I don't have a lot of it there, so you're going to have to enjoy what well, you have. I'm not usually a, a malty beer person, but you know, this is not bad. I feel like you chose, Julia got to choose the beer, uh, and I think you chose wisely for somebody that doesn't like a lot of beer, because this is a sweeter, uh, less bitter variety, so yeah, I've, it was a wise choice. I've been through the bars enough times around here that I know IPAs are not my friends yet. Uh, okay, well, that's good. Normally, we would force everybody to sample IPAs, but today will be nice. We have a guest. That's right. All right, well, we have had a great time in... Madison over the last couple of days, and first of all, we got here and there was an Iron Man going on. We were not here for that. that we, was not. We watched people do that. That's right. Josh and I were not ready to compete in the marathon. Plus, is it a hundred kilometer bike I plus think, two uh, mile swim? So, for those not familiar, that is a hundred and forty point six mile endeavor, which includes two point four swimming, a hundred and twelve mile bike ride, and then a full marathon. Full marathon. We walked down to watch the people, these amazing athletes, as they were coming around this curve in the marathon portion of the show. And there was a little loop where they had to turn and do another lap. And we thought, oh, that's, that no, must they're be... They're almost done. Almost done. You just do one more lap. You're all right. 
that each lap was a half marathon. Yeah. So, it so they was had 13 miles to go, actually, at that point. Starting at 7 a.m., people were running still at midnight. Amazing. Yeah, you know, we realized we were watching people come across the finish line at 9 p.m. And I realized when they started at 7 a.m., I was in bed in North Carolina. I flew to Atlanta, then to Madison, then had lunch, then hung out, then went to dinner, and they were still exercising and they the were whole still time. biking, swimming, jogging. But we met a lot of cool people who were involved with the Ironman, including a lot of people who were there to support family and friends. And we wanted to give a special shout out to Mark and Lori, who were some fantastic dairy farmers we met at they the bar. They were supporting their friend. Drinking Wisconsin beers with us, who were there supporting their friend. And they said they were going to check out the show. So we are going to say hello in case they do. Hello, new friends. <laughs> All right, Dan. Well, we mentioned that we are on location in Madison at Promega headquarters, and it is quite beautiful here. Uh, and we've had such a great visit. Everyone has been so kind, and we want to make sure we thank Promega, not just for being nice to us, but for all the good things that they have in store for our listeners, for our grad students, postdocs. Yeah, we got to meet some of the people behind the Student Resource Center, um, where they have all types of training and technical resources for people uh, who are trying to do cell culture or PCR or any kind of assays. It's, it's an amazing resource. So please go to promega.com slash hellophd and take advantage of it because there is so much there for students and trainees. Including information on getting jobs. So true. Well, let's get into getting jobs. All right. Well, we are going to transition and talk to Julia a little bit about not just working at Promega, but about her very interesting career path to get here. All right. So as we mentioned, we are here with Julia Nepper, Dr. Julia Nepper, I should say. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. Freshly minted PhD. Uh, it's still pretty fresh, but, you know, 2017, so okay, I've gotten used to it at this point. Do you still require all your family and friends to call you doctor? Absolutely. I mean, every five seconds, I'm like, trust me, I'm a doctor. <laughs> I'm a doctor. <laughs> well, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, what you're currently doing now? What's your position now? Um, right now, I'm a science writer at Promega, so I do pretty much anything that involves writing about science. Um, a lot of it is doing technical manuals, so like instructions for how to use our products. Um, but we also do a lot of blogging. Um, we write feature articles, which is like a little more in depth, where you kind of go and interview people and you know weave together this whole narrative that's two or th three thousand words long. Social media writing, uh, writing for videos, just basically a whole variety of stuff that's kind of what really attracted me to this position is i would get to do a lot of different stuff a ton of variety all related to science though all related to science yes and products that promega is making julie i'm told though that if i google your name i'm going to find some stories that are maybe a little bit surprising is that true that is in fact correct and why is that um, it's because I took perhaps a non-traditional route through academia. I started college when I was 11. Like we all did, Josh. <laughs> you know, they grow up so fast. My daughter's nine, and I feel like she's yeah, ready you, to move out in two got years. college prep going, I'm sure. Yeah. That's yeah. Not now I'm, I'm worried. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Start preparing for those SATs, I know. Man. I know. Right around the corner. Yeah, so 11. Started college. Yeah. How is that even possible? Well, I was homeschooled. And basically what happened is my dad 
homeschooled me second through eighth grade, but he did it at a faster rate. So basically he would just give me the end of grade tests whenever he felt like I was ready to take them. And so by the time I was 11, I was at the high school level. And that was when my parents decided they wanted me to go back to school to, you know, get socialization and all of that. Like back to nonsense. back to an established actual right, school back outside to a the public home. school. Okay. Right. What was yeah. a day like on that schedule? Was it was it morning to night reading and studying, or did not, it not even feel that close? Way? Not even close. It's a miracle that I <laughs> that I know anything from having been homeschooled because half the time my dad would forget that he was supposed to have me do lessons. But you just aced those end of grade tests. Yeah. Just one after another. Honestly, I think what it was, was I was a voracious reader. So I would read, and you know, not like high level things, not textbooks or Dostoevsky or anything, but I would just read Harry Potter and stuff. But I would read for eight or 10 hours a day, every single day. And what I think really helped me with being able to pass those tests was just having good reading comprehension and good math skills and the math I got from my dad that was one of the things that he actually did remember to teach those are the things that he worked on yes and then you just had a love of reading would get lost in the stories and consumed just hundreds of books yes and you know probably without the the structured day of a traditional school you probably had more time to actually just read and follow your own interests absolutely yeah so we're going to talk a little bit more about your career path specifically and how you got to grad school but when did your interest in science come into play was that being cultivated during those years too or definitely so my dad was a mechanical engineer so he was always you know very scientifically minded very interested in teaching me about how things work and how to build things my mother was always interested in that kind of stuff also and it was there was never really a point in my life where I can remember being like, yeah, science, that's for me. It kind of just always was a part of my life where I was very interested in science because it was emphasized in our house. It was it was a normal part of life right. from your perspective. Exactly. And I, th- I thought it was super cool. I loved learning things. I loved doing experiments and stuff. And so it kind of just naturally evolved that when I went to college, I did science-like things. So tell us a little bit about that transition, going from being homeschooled to then suddenly you're in a classroom with other students who presumably were a bit older than you. Uh, What was that experience like for you? It was interesting, I guess. I mean, the thing is, it's all I really know. So it's weird, but it's my normal. So the thing I will say is that everyone was super nice to me. Like no one judged me harshly for being way younger or treated me like a child or anything. And that was really nice. And I think that made it a lot easier to be successful in that situation. So they were not jealous of you as I feel like I would have been (laughs) an 11 year old walked in was smarter than I am. Well, not necessarily. They didn't show it at least. Yeah, they didn't show it. And, And was it your idea to start college at that age or did your parents say, we are done teaching you what we can teach you. You need to move on. No, it was definitely, it was mostly my dad's decision. I have no idea how he got it into his head that, It wouldn't occur to me to know that it was possible. Yeah, exactly. Like, I didn't know it was possible until I literally did it. What happened was I'd, so I'd gone back to public school for a semester. I was in eighth grade for a semester. And while I was there, I took the SAT and I scored really well on it. 
And so I guess from that, my dad was like, okay, so let's apply to college and see how this works. And I got in. And so then since I was homeschooled, he literally just wrote a diploma that said I was accelerated through high school. (laughs) And then I went to college. (laughs) For all the high school kids out there, all you need to do is forge a diploma at home. Not true. Not true. You had you had completed the work. You had done the work, and and now you were ready. So being accepted to college, you didn't go live in a dorm. Oh right? no, I was too 11. young. Yeah, they. I had to be at least sixteen to live in the dorms on campus. So and that sounds a little young. Yeah, the year that I graduated, I was old enough to live in the dorms. So you were in a college near your home. Relatively near, yeah. So I lived about thirty minutes away from where my college was every day you couldn't even drive yeah my parents had to take me there every day so no no frat parties not so many as you might think um so so they would drive you there you'd take classes all day it depended on my schedule some days i would have a really busy day and some days i might have just one class and then somebody would be there to pick you up yeah actually for the first two years that i went to college i went to a community college and that college required me to have a guardian with me at all times. So my dad had to sit in the hallway outside of all of my classes. Oh, wow. How was that? Oh, it was great. <laughs> <laughs> I had a fantastic I mean, it's amazing time. that he did it. It's amazing that he did it. It is. Yeah, no, it was really great that my parents were willing to do all this work to make this happen. But, you know, when you're a 12-year-old having your dad follow you around at school, it's not the greatest. It's not the age that you want your parents trailing after you. Exactly, yeah. So were you taking a lot of science classes? Is that when you decided, I really want to focus in on science? What was your major? So when I graduated community college, I went to a four-year university, and I majored in biology because I'd always loved animals, and for a long time I thought I wanted to be a vet because I loved animals. I would say actually about half and half of in terms of science and arts classes, because I also was really into playing piano when I was a kid, and so I actually minored in music for a while. I, I dropped the minor because it was too much work, but... <laughs> I, for a while, had been minoring in music, so I was taking a lot of music classes and arts classes and that sort of thing when I was in college. But the science focus, I don't know. It's It was just something that I always knew that I wanted to do. Came out of your love of animals. Yeah, exactly. And that was a way to approach that field. I mean, did you assume you were going to go to vet school? I did assume that for a long time until probably my last year of undergrad. I thought that I was going to go to vet school. And so what changed? I did research. (gasps) We've heard of that. (laughs) It has changed many lives. Yeah. So I remember I either had to take this class, which sounded boring, or I had the option to do research. So I decided to do research. And I did research with this amazing professor in the chemistry department at UNCW. And she just ignited my love of doing science. And I realized that there were options besides med school, vet school, that sort of thing, I realized grad school was a thing that I could do and that might actually be really interesting for me. Such a common refrain, I think, that I'm doing well in my classes. Therefore, I must have to be a doctor or I must have to be a lawyer. Especially in science classes, I think, especially. I'm good at science. So what careers are out there for me? Medicine, pharmacy, dentistry. And I think those are people that we've met 
you know, growing up. You know, those are ways we've interfaced with science. I know it was very similar for me. I hadn't met a, I didn't know research was a thing until I happened upon it in college. Yeah, it's not making news in the way that a doctor saving a life is making news. It's a, it's a different process. I'm, I'm really impressed to hear about your mentor in, in that research class changing your, changing your life, certainly, and igniting that love for science because we've, we've heard both sides of that story. It can be just a wonderful benefit to have somebody that shows you this new world and opens it up like Narnia uh, or it can be a crushing <laughs> defeat uh, where you never want to look at science again. So Absolutely. I hope you keep in touch with that person. And oh, I do all the time. I mean, great. she's still a mentor to me. And uh, shout out to Anche Almeida. And <laughs> and she's probably changing more lives. I today. hope so. Yeah. yeah, that's amazing. So so what happened next? So you you opened your eyes to to research, and you were moving towards the end of college. So then what? Well, then I did the next logical thing, and I applied to grad school. At age? I think I was 15 when I applied. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, to be fair... It's fine, Josh. (laughs) I'm still an okay person. (laughs) Do you want to... uh, Yeah, Julia can take over from my chair. (laughs) Yeah, uh, Julia seems like she might be better. Yeah, I I agree. Well, I'll see you guys later. (laughs) I mean, I I do make a career out of communicating, so... That's true, that's true. She has more credentials than you, oh even at gosh. this, Dan. She does. She does. Well, I, I would be happy to be replaced by somebody as capable and ready for this job, Josh. Age 15, you applied. And what was the, that process like? Because you probably didn't have exposure to the world of graduate training where you know which schools to apply to and how to find a lab and all of the things that go along with applying to grad school. Right. I did not know anything about that. I had help from my research mentor, but I didn't have any personal experience about it. And I think I encountered probably my first big failure when I started applying to grad school because I got rejected. Like I only applied. I did. Yeah. I only applied to two schools. One of them I was accepted, but I wasn't very excited about it because I had my heart set on going to Chapel Hill. And I applied there I didn't get accepted and it was just crushing for me because basically up until then, I'd been successful at everything I'd ever done. So this was like a huge blow to me. Did they tell you why? I don't remember. It's been. It apparently doesn't matter because the story turns out great. (laughs) (laughs) I assume that it was a combination of my age and the fact that I didn't have a whole lot of research experience compared to some people who would be coming in. I had, you know, just a couple semesters of research experience and there are people coming in with who have been in research since they were freshmen sure absolutely josh sent me the email (laughs) (laughs) i sent you the rejection email (laughs) that's true i would have signed josh (laughs) but it wasn't all bad news it was not all bad news because i learned about another program that was happening at chapel hill the post-baccalaureate research education program and through various means. I Again, I don't remember all of this because it was a long time ago and it's all kind of a blur now, but I ended up getting accepted into that program. And so I went to work at Chapel Hill for a year and that was really exciting for me because I was going to get a year basically of pre-grad school where I would just get to do research in the lab and act like a grad student, live like a grad student and bulk up my resume 
learn more about whether or not I even wanted to do this. It was very exciting. Would you recommend a program like that for somebody who is in, they're not going to be in the same situation where they're 15 or 16, but somebody who maybe doesn't have a ton of experience but thinks they might want to go in that direction? Is that a, a good style of program to get a little more experience? Absolutely. I think post programs are amazing. Are there a lot of them, Josh? Yeah, there actually are. I mean, the, the prep program that, that we run, there are 30 of programs like that throughout the country. Uh, there are others. NIH runs their own postback program um, on their campus, and they take hundreds of postbacks every year. I mean, we often get emails from people who say, I really love science. I'm not sure if grad school's for me. I'm thinking about it. And I feel like, okay, pump the brakes because it's a big commitment, but it sounds like that type of program might be a great transition to find out whether you like it or not. Yeah. I mean, like I said, it's like mini grad school. So you get really get a good taste of what it's going to be like day in and day out when you're in grad school. How and, it, oh, sorry. I was going to ask, how does it differ from just going to get a job for a year, being a lab tech or something? Do you think it's better preparation because you're getting more support, more training? I mean, I'll, I'll let Julia chime in on this too, but I think one key difference is it's extremely focused on helping you be as competitive of an applicant as possible for graduate school. So certainly you could get the research experience either way, but also since the goal of most of the students who are coming into the program is to go on to graduate school, it's very focused on helping you know, how do I write the best personal statement? How do I identify the right programs to apply to? You know, how do I communicate with my advisor to ensure I'm going to get the best letter possible? Did you get all of that, Julia? Yes, I did. Okay. It was it was a fantastic experience for sure. And I mean, and the other thing about doing something like a postback program is since you will be in an academic environment, you get those connections that you wouldn't otherwise get if you were like in an industry setting, for example. That's true, and you get to in this particular case, you got to meet some of the professors who worked at the institution that you were interested in applying to at the time. Um, it could be that only at UNCW are there great, wonderful mentors, and at Chapel Hill there are only terrible people. You didn't know until you got there and you got to meet people. Exactly. got to really get to down students. in the weeds, yeah. So then you applied to grad school again, and what happened? I got accepted. I didn't get accepted everywhere, actually. Um, I think, so this time I went in a lot better informed. I knew like what I was looking for in schools, what kinds of programs I was looking for, what kinds of professors and research I was looking for. So I applied to a lot more schools because I just had more it's ideas. It's not a bad strategy. Yeah, I had more ideas of like what schools I actually wanted to go to. Um, and I got accepted to about half of them. And I ended up coming to University of Wisconsin-Madison because there were several professors here doing research that I was really excited about. I just got an amazing feel from the campus and the city. Like, I immediately fell in love with this city, which is why I've stayed and haven't left since then. It's a great sign, and it reminds me of something you tell us a lot, Josh, which is don't go because there's one professor who you really want to work in that one lab because everything can happen. The money runs out, or the person's lab is full, or they turn out to be a psychopath go go to a place where there you could see yourself in five places or 10 labs and it sounds like that's what you had and even if you were in a lab that was pretty good you loved living in the city yes and that was extremely important because grad school was definitely the hardest thing i've ever done in my life and 
if I hadn't been living in a place that I loved, I think it would have been a lot harder. So not not to overlook this point either, but so at this point you were 17 (laughs) and you moved, you had lived in North Carolina, I guess your whole life. And then suddenly you're packing your bags and you're moving to Wisconsin. Yeah. Is that part of what made it difficult? No, I didn't have a problem with that. (laughs) What was, you have done a lot of what people would consider very challenging things in your life at very young ages. What made graduate school different? I think what made graduate school different was just the sheer amount of failure that you encounter. And a lot of times the complete lack of direction, just not knowing what's going to happen, when it's going to happen, how it's going to happen, and then having to adapt on the fly to all of these things that are going on. Um, But failing every single day almost, it it starts to wear on you after a while. You have developed a confidence in the prior 17 years that say, "If if I work hard at this thing, I can make it happen. And then you try to purify RNA or something, and it's just not happening. Yeah, you're like, where are my bands? I don't know. I follow the steps. Yeah, why why didn't this work? I did everything I was told to do, but alas. And so how, how did you make it through that program? Did you have support in the city? Did you just rely on a great mentor? I had support from two great grad students that were in my lab with me. Um, We were all in the same program, same year, and we were all going through this exact same thing, basically. So it was really lucky for us that we had that because I think otherwise we might have been kind of siloed and might not have really talked to other people about the problems that we were having. But since we were so close, it just came up naturally. And so we were able to have those discussions about like, these are the problems we're having. Like, here's maybe how we can deal with them. So more a team based approach, not necessarily to the research, but to the the emotional aspect of being in graduate school? Or did you actually work together on the projects? Um, We did work together on a few projects, but it was mostly an emotional support type thing. And if you had been three graduate students in three separate labs across campus... I don't think Different that outcome. I don't think it would have turned out the way that it did. So what advice would you give to someone who's in grad school or thinking about going or if you could do anything differently? I guess what feedback or advice would you give? What do give you wish someone? you had known? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, man, I wish I'd known a lot of things. Um I think what I would say I think the biggest thing I would say is that life isn't linear. So don't worry if you get in there and it's like, this is not for me. This isn't working. If you need to change labs, change programs, you know, just go ahead and do it because it's not going to look bad. You're going to be fine. You just need to find what is right for you because this is your career. This is your future. And you need to be able to take control of that and take ownership of it. That's great advice. Love it. I'm, I'm, I'm just thinking through the, the trajectory of most people who get into graduate school, it has been very linear. You follow all the steps. And I think your story is, is the same story, except you did it faster. Right. But, but I do well in high school, then I get into a good college, and then I do well in college, and then I get into a grad school, and then I get in. But then you hit the brick wall, and, and life becomes nonlinear in grad school, I think, uh, where everything was prescriptive up to this point. Now there is a wide open green field, and you've got to make decisions and things don't work and you have to change. And, and you, I think what I hear you saying is 
you're going to sweat making changes because you think it should all be a clean stepping stone path to the next thing, and that's not what you're going to get. Absolutely, yeah. Because it's just like you said, most people in grad school have followed this very linear path, and a lot of grad students also think that they're going to follow this very linear path after grad school. Like, I'm going to do a postdoc. I'm going to get a tenure track position. I'm going to be a professor. I mean, maybe down the road you will be a professor, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you won't work in industry or government for a while, that you won't be in the Peace Corps for a while. Like, there's so many different paths to take to get to the same place. Well, I think I think there's a lot of pressure within the system to try to keep you on that path sometimes, too. I mean, I can remember my own experience of transitioning from being a postdoc into my current job, which is not at all the faculty career that I thought I was going to have. And I can remember experiencing a little bit of resistance from mentors and other people within academia who really cautioned me about stepping off of that academic track. And I loved what you said about not being afraid to make a change and thinking about, well, at the end of the day, it's your life. It's your, you're the one who has to kind of live with your choices. Cause that's exactly the place that I think I had to come to before stepping off of that track is, okay, well, I'm the one that has to live my life every day, not these people. And so if this isn't working for me, that's really what's important to consider in making these decisions. So how did you embrace the nonlinear career trajectory? I think it's mostly just because I've always been a little scatterbrained in that I love so many different things. Like I just, I can never settle on. We call that well-rounded, but you can use (laughs) scatterbrained. That's fine. Yeah. So I'm well-rounded, as you say, and I love doing lots of different things. And so the idea of restricting myself to just one particular path, it just, it never clicked for me. Like I always wanted to explore what are all the different things that I could do after grad school? Like, you know, what kinds of careers can I follow? What kinds of opportunities are there for me? And so I learned about a lot of these things that some grad students just don't even learn about. Like I can become a science writer, for example. And so because I knew those possibilities existed, it was easier for me to kind of feel them out and be like, okay, this one feels right for me, this one maybe not so much, and like try different things until I found what really clicked. You, The way you're describing it, you seem to just love learning, which I think we've gotten from a little bit of your history. Is it Was it tough for you to go deep on a single topic as a graduate student? Or was it, I mean, were you drawn to a broader swath of things to learn and to just voraciously consume as much of the the knowledge as you could get yeah. as opposed to going very deep in a very thin slice. I kind of was eventually, you know, you you get attached to your project and you become okay with going super deep into this one thing. But I always found it difficult to like if I was at a talk for example, you know, if people got too deep into the weeds, I would just I would just check out because what I always wanted was the high level overview. I want to learn, you know, how does the immune system work? Not how does this particular amino acid in this particular protein affect this particular pathway? She's describing my PhD work. (laughs) Spot on. I mean, it's everybody's PhD work, but mine particularly. So how do people find careers in science writing? We have a lot of people who are interested in science communication. Well, I would say an important part of it is just putting yourself out there and like trying 
to do stuff. So like I had a blog, I did a lot of science outreach. I think that there's a lot of overlap between people who do science outreach and people who do science writing, like, and a lot of overlap between those groups. So science outreach can be kind of a way to find who is in the science communication space and then connect with those people and then they can connect you with other people and then eventually, hopefully, you find a job. But, you know, because it is all about who you know, not what you know. It is. And were those things important for you? Did did somebody who hired you look at your blog and say, oh, yeah, she's been doing this a while. She must really love it. Yeah, they definitely, when I applied at Promega, they asked for writing samples and definitely it was... A, you didn't have to make them up. I didn't. No, I, I had them already ready to go. And so I think that was a definite plus in my favor. Good sign that you don't want to be a science writer if they ask for writing samples and you don't have any yet. And you're like, oh, that's something like pulling teeth to put together these <laughs> writing samples. Can I get back to you in three weeks? <laughs> What's the page limit on well, that? And you know, Dan, <laughs> yeah, you know, we say that all the time, though, that if there is one thing grad students probably could do more of, it's spending time during their training, not just doing their research and getting their papers, but actually thinking about the career they want to transition to, that grad school is not a destination, but is a transition to something else you want to do. And part of that training is actually trying some things and seeing if you like them. I mean, you could have tried doing a blog or outreach and thought, eh, this is not very exciting at all, but you had the opposite experience and that informed you then going after those types of jobs um, and made you more competitive for them. This is related to my survey question that I'm asking all graduate students that I meet now that have graduated. Did you finish first or find a job first? I finished first. Oh, wow. Okay, good. Chalk that one up into the column. I'm encouraging people to find jobs first. (laughs) That was the plan. Which encourages you to finish. Yeah. Uh, so, So, Julia, contrast your sort of general feelings and experience being a grad student with now being out in the real world, having a real job, and being a science writer? Well, let me tell you, it gets better. (laughs) There is hope on the other side of the tunnel. It feels a lot different. So in grad school, what I found is that I was able to be very, very independent and just, I could kind of do whatever I wanted, basically, which is why I ended up doing so many extracurricular things like outreach and writing and all of those sorts of things. Um, here in the real world, you know, you're part of a team much more. It's less about just your little piece of the pie and it's more about you're contributing to this larger picture. So there's less independence just because you have to think about the other people that will be affected by the things that you do. Like if you take time to do X, Y, and Z, that's taking time away from this project that other people are relying on you for. Which could slow everybody down. Exactly. And was that a tough transition to make? Or you you picked up on it pretty quickly and were able to move on? It's not training you're getting working as, as an independent graduate student. Right. It was kind of a tough transition because... Like I said, I love learning stuff. I love doing lots of different stuff. So it was a little difficult for me to take a step back and be like, okay, I need to rein it in and, you know, not just leap on every single opportunity that comes my way to do something cool and exciting. What about the failure part? Do you feel like you're hitting as many brick walls as you did in grad school? I feel like I'm not because the thing about grad school is you're trying to do someone something that no one else has done before, right? So it's 
going to be hard and you're going to hit a lot of brick walls. Whereas what I'm doing now, I'm using things that already exist, talking about things that already exist. So it's a lot easier in that way. And also I have so much knowledge that I can draw from like in my department, in the company that makes it a lot easier. If I do hit a brick wall, then, you know, I just go ask a question and someone can help me figure it out. How does having a PhD affect your career? Does it does it put you in a different place when you start? Does it open up opportunities? I don't know the difference between coming in with a PhD versus maybe a bachelor's degree or something related to science, but not having gone through that intense research training. It definitely it gives you a different perspective on the things that you're writing about. And I mean, it's kind of nice in that it gives you a lot more credibility with the R&D scientists. So, you know, if, for example, you're reading some paper that they put together and you're trying to edit it for clarity, you're trying to like maybe cut something out or rewrite something, they trust you a lot more if you have a PhD. You know, it's not necessarily the right way to go, but it's... Exploiting the implicit biases of (laughs) scientists everywhere. (laughs) It's worth, I mean, there's a, there is a real action there that you can take advantage of because you've got the letters. Yeah, exactly. But in terms of actually doing the work, aside from just, you know, sometimes I'm working on a technical manual and I'm like, yeah, I used this product. I remember exactly how this works. Well, that's what I was going to ask you is, do you feel like your graduate school experience and training, even though you're doing really different stuff now than what you did in grad school, do you feel like anything you learned in grad school is helping you in your career now? Definitely. Yeah. Now, articulating what those things are is a little more difficult. And again, I don't know how much of the things that I did, because I did so much different stuff in grad school that just wasn't necessary for me to do. And a lot of those things have been what have helped me the most. So... Everything outside of the lab that yeah, you'll keep basically. using for the rest of your life. Yeah. You hear that, grad students? It's not just us telling you that anymore, that sometimes those quote-unquote extra things you do away from the bench might be the very things that help you get the job of your dreams. How many gels have you run this week at work? <laughs> Zero. Oh, see that? 0.0. 0. <laughs> Me too. Me too. Hey. It gets better. <laughs> <laughs> well, Julie, this has been really fantastic. And first of all, it's great to see you again. This is the first time we've yeah, seen each other see for, too, we decided, how many years? Seven years? Seven years. Yeah. So, so proud of you and glad to see you doing so many great things. And thanks for sharing all these experiences um, with us on the show. Uh, is there anything else you want to talk about or plug or writing you're doing? People can go find things you've written. Yeah. Um, yeah, you can check out our blog, our Promega blog. It's promegaconnections.com. And me and all of the other wonderful science writers write about stuff, you know, <laughs> basically whatever we find interesting. And I think that's a pretty exciting place to find some cool stuff about science. Very cool. Thank you for taking the time. This has really been fun. Thank you. All right. Well, if you have a question or topic idea, we would love to hear it. You can email us, podcast at hellophd.com, send us a tweet at hellophd, or you can leave a message on our Facebook page. If you like the show, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We love the feedback. If you'd like to support the show, you can become a patron. Simply go to our website, hellophd.com, and you can click the Become a Patron button, or you can visit patreon.com slash hellophd. We would appreciate the beer money, and thanks to the ongoing support from all of our patrons. Dan, heading back to North Carolina tomorrow, but 
going to enjoy our time tonight in Madison. The cool weather. And oh, I love it. One last night of that, and then back to the scorching heat. And we'll pick up some cheese curds. Yeah, let's do that. Fried. We'll describe those next week on the show. <laughs> we sure we will. will. And if they're fresh, we will squeak them into the microphone. So you say. Okay. Well, maybe maybe a different podcast. All right. Thank you, Daniel. And thank you, Julia. Thank you. Brought to you by cool. Amazon Basics. See on there? These cables. Also Amazon Basics. Awesome. It's wow. amazing that Amazon has basic gigantic patch cables for microphones. Yeah, there was some other weird Amazon Basics thing that I saw the other day. It was like a surprising product. I'm trying to remember what it was. Oh, I know what it was. My wife was looking for a pair of ballet flats. Oh, she was at a shoe store. For and her or for your daughter? For her. So she was at a shoe store, and there was some name brand of shoes. And I, I don't know any name brands of shoes. And she said, look these up and let me know if this is a good deal. So I went on Amazon and typed the shoe in. The first thing that popped up was recommended Amazon Ballet Flats. Amazon Basics. That's because they have data that says a lot of people want that thing. But isn't that a weird, it's really weird. Amazon brand shoes? No, I mean, I know many people who need Amazon Basics <laughs> Ballet Flats. There you go. I'm in the market for some right now, in fact. Well, you could get them for fourteen ninety six. What a bargain. <laughs> Not brought to you by Amazon Basics. <laughs>